Uh, the first is from Galatians, and it's uh, Galatians chapter 3, and we're reading from uh, verses 26 to 29. Galatians three, twenty-six. So in Christ Jesus, you're all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptised into Christ have clothed, your, clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And the next passage, uh, Revelation, last book of the Bible, uh, chapter 7, and we're starting at verse 9. Revelation 7, verse 9. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. Thanks for the reading, Steve. Uh, let me add my welcome to Ken's. If you are new or visiting, my name's Rod. I'm one of the pastors here at WBC. And as you've heard, we're in between series and we have this focus, which we really enjoy each year, thinking about the nations and being one in Christ. Um, so let me uh, pray for us before we have a look at those two passages that have just been read and think on this theme together tonight. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the freedom to meet in this way. We thank you for your great love and mercy shown towards us in the sending of your Son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you that you so love this world that you have made, that you sent him to provide a way back into relationship with you. Uh, Lord, we pray tonight as we think about uh, your actions towards us, your concern for all people, your love for all nations, uh, that you might uh, strengthen our vision of your perspective of this world. Help us to be those that uh, understand our place in your great plans and desire to include others as well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this time next year, we'll be in the midst of the Olympic Games. The 2020 Olympic Games that are going to be held in Tokyo will be about partway through. And there is going to be a huge amount of people going to Tokyo as part of that. They're getting ready to welcome 920,000 foreigners every single day of the Games. And so Tokyo, if it's not already a city bursting with people, will be even fuller at that time. And it's going to involve 11,000 athletes uh, from nearly every country on earth. There's going to be 339 events across 33 sports in 50 disciplines. 
And it's a real sense of all the nations coming together as it is every four years. And of course, if you include the Winter Olympics, it's every two years that all the nations are really being gathered in this way. There's a, a real sense of commonality of people coming together. And of course, that's always been one of the goals of the Olympic movement, if not the goal, to contribute, as they often say, to a better, peaceful world. And according to the organisers for Tokyo Games next year, it's going to rest on three fundamental principles that will transform the world. It's a big claim, but here's the three. Uh, striving for your personal best, accepting all people, and passing on a legacy for the future. In fact, on their website, they talk about how no matter what colour or language or race, we share in the charm and the joy of the Olympics as we seek to build a better world and reach the ideal of peace. Well, these are big claims, aren't they? These claims about unity and peace, they're very impressive. But are they a reality? I mean, as we look out at our world today, we see so many wars still going, conflicts all around the place. We see many people in poverty struggling just to survive. We see many nations in which there are very few human rights. Our world is actually chaotic and there is very little harmony as we look out, as we see the feed of news that comes through on our computers or on the TV day by day. And so I guess as we hear these ideals of the Olympic movement, it can seem somewhat wishful and fanciful to us. It's all very well, they're, they're good and wonderful aims, but can the Olympics, a sporting event, produce such peace and unity? What would produce such unity in our divided, in our world of differences? Well, that brings me to the question that I want us to consider tonight. You know, what can truly produce unity across cultural, racial, gender divides? What can produce that? Is that possible? Well, the foundational answer in our passage tonight that the Apostle Paul gives us is it is possible through faith in God's Son. It can be made possible through faith in Jesus Christ. Notice again what the Apostle Paul states in Galatians 3, verses 26 and 27. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptised into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. See, the Apostle Paul is holding out a promised unity here, indeed a new world order. And the basis of this unity is adoption into God's family through Jesus. Notice that God can produce such unity in the lives of believers through faith in his Son, and notice that we have the full rights of children, or literally sons in the original Greek. We're adopted into God's family with all the blessings and promises that come with that as his children by faith. And that faith that we express in Christ and his death and resurrection pays for our sin, wins us forgiveness before God, and gives us an eternal hope, a sure hope of eternal life. Faith in Jesus baptizes us, we're told, into Christ. Like this is a shorthand phrase that's used throughout the New Testament, in Christ or into Christ. It's really a summary of the gospel because this baptism that he's talking about is not one of water baptism. It's about spirit baptism. It's being included in Jesus through faith in him and the giving of his spirit. And so water baptism is not being referred to as much as that's a wonderful outward symbol of that inner work that takes place in the life of a believer. 
But that's made clear for us in the phrase there, clothed yourselves with Christ. It's this analogy, picture, isn't it, of clothing, of putting off, really, Paul is saying, our old clothing, our sinful actions, and putting on the righteousness that is to us in Jesus, that is credited to us simply by faith in his perfect life. And so the believer has laid aside their old life and received a new life in Christ. And we're indeed part of a new family of believers. And that's the amazing result of this truth. If Jesus has done this work and we are brought into his family, then what does that look like in terms of our change of outlook? Well, certainly it shifts us firstly from objects of wrath to being his sons and daughters included in his family. But notice in verse 28, Paul wants to focus on what it means horizontally as we think about those around us. He wants to say that our many differences have been removed through the gospel. Because we're united by faith in Jesus, we're now part of a family where the distinctions that this world makes all the time just don't matter anymore. So notice again that definitive statement, verse 28. The removal of so many categories that our world so often uses to abuse and divide people over. Verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. (laughs) That's an astounding claim. Incredible claim. Jesus is the only one that can unite people in the kind of way that people so often long for. And so this must have been glorious news. Think back, if you can, or try and imagine the scene 2,000 years ago. If you were a Galatian Christian living in a society where if you were a Jewish person, then you looked down on the Gentiles. You saw them as second-class citizens. They weren't of the same social status as you. Where women in the society were often confined and disrespected. Where Gentiles were not only sneered at by Jews, but certainly slaves all the more so. Slaves were just considered the property of their owner. They had no rights. They were an unimportant person, no status within the society. You know, it's said that many um, Pharisees, some of the religious leaders of Christ's day even, would pray each morning these words, I thank thee, God, that I am a Jew and not a Gentile, that I am a man and not a woman, that I am a free man and not a slave. Can you believe a person uttering such a prayer? It's a terrible prayer. And yet all these distinctions were such big things in the first century. That's why a person could think so wrongly in these ways. And yet Paul is saying here that all these distinctions, all these bases for spiritual discrimination have been removed in Jesus. And so that doesn't mean if we come to the point of placing our faith in Christ that our, our race and our, our family and our, our political status or our agenda is erased and we're kind of this non-person. No, but it does mean that none of those things are, mean one person is of greater value than the other or that they're a handicap to another person. When we come to God through Christ, it's a level playing field. We are all sinners desperately in need of God's grace, and if we receive it through faith in Jesus, then we are all equal before God. These are the wonderful truths of the gospel. And the result should be that amongst God's people, there should never be grounds for prejudice on somebody's race or their gender or their wealth or their political status or whatever it might be. These things are superficial differences that have no place amongst God's people. 
Now, that was just astounding thinking in the first century. And sadly, in many places of the world today, it still is. It should hit us afresh as we see that even in a place like Australia, there can be such discrimination, such elevation of some people over others. And as we look around at our brothers and sisters tonight that have come from probably 10 or 15 nations at least, we need to realise that we would not be here tonight. You would not be sitting here if it weren't for Christ. How would you know the people in this room if it weren't for your faith in Jesus? So many of them you would have never met, you have never come into relationship with them, except for that common bond that you have because of your trust in God's Son. And so we've been brought together as one big family, and it is such a wonderful thing, such an amazing thing that we have been blessed with in Christ, and it's something that we should celebrate. Now, this is not a unity that we've worked up ourselves, that we try hard to love one another. God has produced this in us through the pouring out of his spirit as we've placed our faith in his son. It's a unity that we have despite our diversity. And it should give us a much sense of deep of community and connection than anything you will find in this world. And so many people want to claim in this world that there's, you know, there are other ways to feel close to people, that I can feel a connection, that I can love them as my brother or sister because I have the same sporting interest. Or, you know, I follow, I go to the Olympic Games, as we heard earlier. Or maybe it's some human achievement or something that can draw us together. But nothing does what Jesus can do. Let me give you an example. In the past month, uh, we've been celebrating the 50th anniversary of the landing on the moon. July 20, 1969, Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, land the American crew that land the Apollo Lunar Module Eagle on, onto the moon's surface. Armstrong, the first person to step out onto the surface, followed a few minutes later by Aldrin. And this is beamed worldwide in what was a record TV audience at the time. 530 million people saw this moment. 20% of the world's population observed this incredible feat. And of course, as Armstrong stepped down, he had those famous words, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. But I don't know if you realise some of the other details that went around this moment. The American president, Richard Nixon, spoke to the two astronauts who landed, saying this, Hello, Neil and Buzz. I'm talking to you by telephone from the Oval Room at the White House. And this certainly has to be the most historic telephone call ever made. I just can't tell you how proud we are of all that you've done. And for people all over the world, I am sure that they join with Americans in recognising what an immense feat this is. And because of what you've done, the heavens have become part of man's world. And as we talk to you, it inspires us to redouble our efforts to bring peace and tranquility to Earth. For one priceless moment in the whole history of mankind, all the people on this earth are truly one. One in pride in what you have done, one in our prayers that you might return safely to earth. Oh, these are memorable lines, these are laudable statements from the president. But were they true? Was this the one moment in history where the common bond of humanity, that we're brought together and we truly have a sense of belonging and caring for one another? 
Well, you'd be hard-pressed to argue it. <laughs> I mean, this was the culmination of a space race that was Russia versus the United States. As the Americans landed on the moon, the Russians at least were very unhappy that they were beaten to the punch. And as you heard, only 20% of the world actually saw this. 80% didn't even see what happened. Many of them only heard in the weeks that followed and had doubts. Some do even now. But there's something more than this. While most people in the United States certainly celebrated this accomplishment, many disenfranchised Americans saw this moment as a symbol of the division in their country. They were deeply upset, which was evidenced by protesters who were outside the Kennedy Center the day before the Apollo 11 launched. They were there because of the racial and financial inequality in the nation of the United States. And they were angry that so much money had been spent on the Apollo program, and yet there were people struggling to have a meal. You know, even throughout the 1960s when the space race was at its height, where this was the one thing that they were going to achieve, there was only one Gallup poll in the United States that actually had more people than less being happy about the money that was being spent. Only at one point in the 1960s did they think it would be good that there were more exploration rather than less because people were worried about the concerns here on Earth. In fact, by 1973, 60% of Americans were voting to reduce spending on space exploration. Now, don't get me wrong, it was an amazing feat and still is. It was a wonderful moment. But was it the moment that brought humanity together? Is this the defining thing that can bring a bond between people? Well, I put it to you, it's nothing compared to the supernatural work that God can do through his son the kind of unity that you can enjoy with another believer. That is something else, and only God can produce it. It's nothing that we can build up. It's nothing that humanity can work up through an Olympic Games or some amazing achievement. And that brings me to a second answer to our question. What is it that can truly produce unity between people, people that are so often divided and categorised, well, this second point simply builds on the first. It's just an extension of it, and it's this. Being heirs of the promises to Abraham. Being heirs of the promises to Abraham. Have a look where Paul goes next in verse 29. You see, if we're adopted into God's family by faith in Jesus, it means that we're Abraham's spiritual heirs. If you belong to Christ, Paul writes, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. See, the Old Testament law could never make you an heir to all of God's promises. There was no way that you could fulfill all of God's law, impress him by your perfection, and therefore earn your way into his presence. It couldn't be done. The law only pointed you to your sinfulness and your need of a saviour. And of course, that was the reason that Jesus was sent, that he might be the one that lived the perfect life in our place as our substitute and then bore our sin, and that we might place our trust in him. But of course, the coming of Christ was the fulfillment of promises that God had made way back in Genesis 12 to Abraham and continued on through the nation of Israel. And so in Genesis 12, remember the three main promises that Abraham was made, land, offspring, blessing, lob, easy to remember. They were promised to Abraham and they were extrapolated on in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. And it was said that all the nations would be blessed through Abraham. 
And so as we come to this section in verse 29, from a Jewish viewpoint, a Jewish reader of these first words, Paul is making a startling claim. He's saying that a person can be an heir of Abraham, of these promises that started way back in Genesis 12, even if they're not Jewish. You could be a Gentile and be an heir of Abraham. How is that possible? Because all of that was just going forward to the point when Christ would come and the gospel would be given to all nations. And that anybody that placed their faith in Jesus was therefore an heir of Abraham, an inheritor of these promises that he first received. And so I hope as you think about those things, realise that you're united with other believers in being heirs of these wonderful promises, that this is not in terms of the physical nature of those promises to the nation of Israel. It's not like you're looking forward to a piece of land in the Middle East. We can't wait to have this area of land that was pointed out to Abraham. No, it's the spiritual blessings that flowed from these promises that we would be wrapped up in the grace that was first shown to Abraham. And because that's the point that's made over and over in the Bible. In Romans 4, for example, Abraham was never saved because he maintained the law. He couldn't, just like you can't. But he was by faith, credited with Christ's righteousness. And we're included in that grace. It's the same for us. And the result is that we're heirs with him of God's wonderful inheritance to his people. What is that inheritance? Well, ultimately, it's eternal life. And that eternal life is a focus on being with God in his perfect presence in heaven, The goal of a believer is to be with God, to enjoy his presence perfectly for all time. And so heaven's not about what I might get or how I'm going to enjoy myself or the number of sports I'm going to tick off. People have these long lists and imaginary things of what they're going to do. It's about being with the one who has saved you. And the thing about it is, is that it's not just a personal thing at that point. It's just not you relating to God as you get to be in his presence. It's you relating with all the brothers and sisters in Christ from across every generation, every nation. That's the picture the Apostle John gives us in Revelation 7, that passage that was read before. Let me take you there again, verses 9 and 10. Being in God's perfect presence and sharing that together with a united people. John writes, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the land. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. I mean, how wonderful would that day be? It's hard really for us to take in that great multitude and what it will be like to stand before God, not alone, but surrounded by brothers and sisters from every place on the planet. And here tonight, as we think about this and as we meet Sunday by Sunday, what we've got is just a small taste, a microcosm of that future reality for everyone who is a believer. That's a wonderful thing. Some people might say, certainly those who have yet, not yet trusted in Jesus, well, all this talk about being brothers and sisters and the unity that Christians claim because of their faith in Jesus, you know, maybe that just comes because 
Well, it's easy to get together in a place like Australia. Look, it's multicultural already and it's a very comfortable nation. It's easy for this group of people to gather on a Sunday night. We have freedom to do so. What makes it something that would overcome even the most difficult divisions where people and different ethnic groups hate each other? Could that be overcome? Would people be able to come together because of their common faith even across great hurt? Well, the war in Bosnia and Herzegovina was a conflict that took place between uh, March 1992 and November 1995. Over 100,000 people were killed in this civil war. 1.8 million people displaced. It was one of the most bloody and terrible civil wars since World War II. It had some of the worst genocidal events since World War II, which were even prosecuted. You maybe remember Srebrenica. Serbs killing Croats, killing Bosniaks. Here was a war that had three clearly defined ethnic factions, Serbs, Croats, and Bosniaks. And in the middle of it was the city of Sarajevo. And the city of Sarajevo had 396 shells on average land on it every day for three years, as each side just tried to smash one another to death. Could such people love each other if they came to know Jesus? I can remember vividly being at Bible college in 1999 and a missionary coming to visit us, who had been serving in Sarajevo from the end of the war for the four years, from 95 to 99. And he described a church service that he'd been part of in Sarajevo. And his description just made the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. He talked about Croats and Serbs and Bosnians standing next to each other, shoulder to shoulder, worshipping God. These were people who had relatives that had died because of other people in the room. And there they were, because of Christ, tears running down their face, worshipping God together. Surely that is a miracle that can only be wrought by God. It's only through faith in God's Son that such people can be united, that all the divisions in our world can be overcome. See, such things are just not possible, humanly speaking, are they? There's no better example of the unifying power of the gospel than such moments. People so alienated and divided from one another, calling each other brother, sister. If people were to ask you this week, what can truly bring people together? What is something that can unite our divided world? They may have many ideas and thoughts in their mind about what might do that. But I put it to you tonight, the only answer that you could give them that has any real weight is faith in God's Son. It's only Christ that can do this. And this is something we need to celebrate. Please don't take our unity for granted. It's not something we work up, as I mentioned earlier. It's something that's been given to us by God. He's produced it. But we need to live up to what we've already been given. We need to embrace and serve one another. 
whichever background we come from, we're all equal before God. We should treasure what God has done. And it should spur us on not only to love one another as we meet each Sunday and through the week, surely it is the spur to send us out to share the good news with people that are unlike us, from people from different backgrounds, from people we think would not be able to connect with us. God doesn't see such barriers. They're just in our head. What he sees are sheep without a shepherd in desperate need of the good news. He wants the gospel to go so that he might draw more people from every tribe and language and nation together so they might be surrounding the throne on that great day as pictured in Revelation 7. I hope you are encouraged, I hope you are challenged to keep living for Jesus, to express that unity that we have and to want to share it with others that they may be brought into God's family too. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your wonderful work done for us through your Son, the Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you that in him you have shown us amazing love and mercy and included us into your family, that we're adopted as your sons and daughters, that we now have brothers and sisters that sit beside us in church that we will be with for eternity who may well be closer to us than our own family members because of their common faith in the Lord Jesus. Lord, these are wonderful truths. Help us to see the world as you do and to express love for fellow believers as a result of this great inclusion of so many. And help us to be spurred on to share what we know so that you may draw many others into your great family. We long for that day when we may worship you together. Help us to continue to strive towards it. In Christ's name we ask. Amen.